I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Saturday School. It's cool because I don't, our listeners don't know this, but usually we just do this without video and then I, I can actually see you today. I know. We're Zooming now. Well, I mean, we're in the future now. That's like sort of the topic of our season that we're about to launch. Brian has an amazing Velcro thing on his hair right now. <laughs> All right, maybe we should turn the videos off. <laughs> hey, it's cool though. <laughs> I don't know if we should admit this, but every single time we record an episode, we're like, wait, what season are we in? What episode are we doing? <laughs> so we were just like, are we on season eight <laughs> of our podcast? We, we would never, ever would have imagined that we would have been on a season eight years later, like many years after we started doing this. Each season is not a year. Right, right. So, it's usually like a spring semester and a fall semester. But last year was too crazy. So we, had, we gave you guys a semester off. <laughs> To think really hard about our last semester, which was about... Weighty subjects. Yeah, yeah. Interracial Asian American cinema. Yeah. That was not where we thought we were headed when we started this podcast. We started it with, like, Randall Park cooking cocaine into Chinese food. (laughs) (laughs) And then it became about Asian and Black solidarity. Yeah. But uh, it's, you know... We need it all. That's the breath of Asian America. Yeah. This season, we're excited because we're going to explore Asian-American sci-fi films. Yeah, because in the past, when we've emphasized in other genres like comedy and romance and musicals, you realize like those are not realist genres. <laughs> like We tend to think about Asian-American cinema as capturing some kind of authentic reality, because otherwise, why does Asian-American cinema exist? And yet, if you look at our, the history of our podcast, we're, we're so much more invested in like realms of ridiculousness and entertainment and fantasy. In our podcast and in life. And, and, and maybe it was natural that sci-fi would be next. Like sci-fi a genre that is even more so than the other genres. Like very explicitly, like to the level of our worlds and our bodies. Like worlds that don't, and bodies that may not actually exist yet that we know of. Ultimately, it's all a fantasy, right? Right, exactly. Like this is at the end of this is representation. Like that's that's what we love about art, right? That it doesn't necessarily have to map reality exactly because reality can be kind of boring sometimes. <laughs> Cinema takes advantage of the imagination in such a rich and an engaging way. And Asian Americans have wielded the medium itself, and we should talk about them as artists doing this as opposed to them just trying to capture their quote-unquote real worlds. We thought this was a good time for us to imagine our futures. We talk about the post-pandemic moment, and I kind of think about it as a post-apocalyptic moment. I mean, there were definitely moments like summer of 2020 when it did seem like we were facing some kind of end of the world as we know it. Yeah, yeah. And like, will we ever return to quote-unquote normal? And I think right now there is a feeling that maybe we can But then also the feeling that we don't want to go back to the past normal, especially with all the racial reckoning stuff, right? Exactly, right? Like, the the past sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like, like this idea of going back to the way it was once we can step out into the the actual world. I mean, that's nice because there's a comfort to that, the way nostalgia brings us comfort. But I think this is also an opportunity to imagine other futures 
And why not turn to those who are most committed to imagining possible futures than our sci-fi artists? It's extra important for us as Asian Americans because the difference between pre-pandemic times is the Asian hate crimes have doubled. Yeah, and if, I mean, especially if you think about the pandemic as its kind of apocalyptic moment, a lot of Americans have blamed Asians for the apocalypse. In the lore of science fiction, that makes us the aliens that are attacking or the zombies that have taken over. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like, like we are the villains. Yeah. So. Sci-fi is such a great genre. I was thinking about, wait, wait, what does it mean to call someone the villain? Is there porousness between heroes and villains? But also, like, are there other ways of thinking about sci-fi beyond just, like, heroism and villainy? Like, other ways of thinking about futures beyond just, like, who's going to win? And that's the thing, too, with Asian Americans. There's the model minority thing we're always fighting, right? So maybe we don't need to be the heroes. Maybe we should be more like the villains sometimes. Maybe we just want to be the robots. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Actually, I want to be the robots. You know, um, there's a comic called Alex and Ada. What? We should acknowledge that we're just talking about films, but Asian American sci-fi transcends multiple mediums. But yeah, look. (laughs) That's amazing. There's a comic by Jonathan Luna and Sarah Vaughn called Alex and Ada that me and my husband collected because his name is Alex and my name is Ada. (laughs) Alex is the human... And Ada is totally the robot. (laughs) The last thing in the world Alex wanted was an X5. (laughs) The latest in realistic androids. But after Ada is dropped into his life, he discovers she is more than just a robot. (laughs) (laughs) You want to be the robot. I am the robot. You are the robot. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought up comics because when we were doing research on this season, we actually realized that Asian Americans' innovations in science fiction are probably not really in film. Yeah, it's like yeah. in literature. Uh, if you think about like Ted Chiang and Charles Yu, think about like comics. Like we were even thinking about like electronic music and it's like Steve Aoki as a kind of future craft. And then also in, in TV, I mean, we may talk about a little bit of TV later in the season, but we also should just acknowledge Star Trek, which you and I don't really know anything about. Yeah, so we should acknowledge just from the get-go that Brian and I are not experts in sci-fi at all. We know very little about Marvel. Is that right? No, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I know very little about Star Wars, very little about Star Trek. And if you're interested in that, there's tons of resources for that. One of our Potluck Podcast Collective comrades, Phil Yu, Angry Asian Man, has a podcast about all the Asians in Star Trek. A glorious concept. I'm so, I'm so glad he's doing that. Yes. His podcast co-host, Jeff Yang, on They Call Us Bruce, has also done a lot of work around Asian American and comics with Keith Chow, who runs Nerds of Color who does amazing stuff in that realm as well. So if you're interested in actually knowing about mainstream sci-fi, like American pop culture sci-fi, and how Asian Americans are involved in that, go to them, not us. (laughs) Um, But I feel like this is not what the season is about. I think we're curious about Asian Americans as auteurs in this genre. And what happens when we're not a player in a bigger mainstream project, but we make it ourselves. And then what we're going to find is that at some point we stop talking about science fiction as a genre, like a genre with certain kinds of characters and worlds that 
reoccur that are conventions. We're really talking about science fiction as a, as a way of thinking about futures or alternate versions of ourselves and things like that. So a lot of the films that we'll be talking about, like a lot of people will be like, that's that's not a sci-fi film. And you know what? You'll be right. <laughs> like if you think about sci-fi as a genre. <laughs> but we, yeah, we want to like, to me, what's interesting about sci-fi is that it dares us to think about other possibilities, not just of our bodies and our worlds and our cultures, but also of, of our forms. And it's exactly that the beauty of that in that genre that Asian Americans have been able to be part of Hollywood in these genres at a greater frequency than other genres. You know, for like, you know, Battlestar Galactica, Star Trek. There's so many examples of sci-fi projects where you can see Asian Americans there because they can imagine the future and they know that the future involves Asian Americans. To a certain extent, though. So, so this is a, a great segue to, I think, how we want to set up the season which is with this notion of techno-Orientalism. As Ada tweeted to the world, I assigned you <laughs> a, a reading related to techno-Orientalism. I mean, I'm, I'm just a lifelong student of yours, Professor Who. <laughs> well, I'm a lifelong student of people who actually know what they're talking about. So I, I think we should just mention to our listeners that we read the introduction to a book called Techno-Orientalism, Imagining Asia in Speculative Fiction. And it's by David S. Rowe, Betsy Huang, and Greta A. New. And if you want to know more about, about techno-Orientalism, like, please check out this LED collection that they put together. But the introduction they wrote is really useful for thinking about the history of this concept and the histories that techno-Orientalism is kind of building upon. Okay, before you get too far, what is techno-Orientalism? I mean, so I think a lot of people are familiar with this notion of Orientalism. This is the way that the West looks at the East as perpetually exotic, perpetually in the past. Like you go to the Middle East and it's like you're still 100 years in the past. Or like China is, and places in the Far East, right? Uh, is where you go to find like pagodas and dragons or, or whatever, right? Like, like dynastic exoticism. But it's also gendered in a certain way such that like a lot of this exoticism leads us then to think about Asian women as like geishas. So this... Orientalism is a way for the West to claim superiority over the East, which is backwards. They're closer to primitive versions of us. We are more modern than them. So part of the Western modern project required them to find an other, an other that is in the past. So, and Orientalism was the primary way, or one of the primary, and, and you see it in, in paintings and literature, creating these two worlds as separate. So techno-Orientalism is a way of thinking about this weird paradox, which is, in the contemporary moment, or at least in the last, I don't know, like a few, few decades, it's harder and harder to make the case that Asia is purely in the past, especially when we think about the economic competition, first from Japan and later from China and India, where the future of the United States will be our battling with these other potential superpowers. And when we look at their technologies, we realize, wait, technologically, they may be more advanced than we are or they use technologies in a certain way, or they're like they're turning their people into robots in a certain way that we just can't compete against. And so up against this fear, kind of like economic fear or cultural fear, we get a new kind of Orientalism in which the East isn't just in the past, they're both in the past and in the future, or they're in the future, but we find new ways to exotify them, to gender them in a way that will make them more palatable or conquerable and especially if you think about the future as a terrain that we're going to fight with technologies how do we reckon with 
Asia as technology too. And one thing that the essay talks about is how Orientalism is a Western construct, but techno-Orientalism is kind of this idea from both East and West, for lack of a better term. Yeah, right. Because Japan wants to show how mighty it is. China wants to show how mighty it is. And part of that is like saying, we are technologically very advanced and you should be seduced by us too. Yeah, yeah, seduction. Yeah, like this is cool. Like you got to come here and see what's up. Yeah, and now like Korea is doing a, yeah. a lot of this. But like you could even, like, even something like Korea where you could see how the West then retranslates their might into a new kind of exoticism, like, like with K-pop. K-pop to me seems very futuristic, but the way that like Western media might then suddenly say, well, all these K-pop stars are interchangeable. They have no personality. Using sort of the language of robots, of robots to further show that the West is superior. And so this like robot culture, the cultures around robots are both like the West fetishizes Japanese robots, like think about like anime and manga and like all these other like technologies that we like think like, oh, wow, like they're so far in the future, like bullet trains and like all these like little gadgets. And yet, do we do that out of pure awe? Or is there some other way in which by looking at them as this like giant train construction set that people like to play in, like, it, does that also infantilize in a certain way? Dehumanize. Dehumanize, yeah. Yeah. And then that kind of leads to how this has been portrayed through Hollywood films. Yeah. The ultimate example would be Blade Runner, a world set in the near future. The world now looks like a mix of East and West. It's sort of like Japan had its moment. And now we're sort of living in the wake of some kind of like U.S.-Japanese economic or military war or something. But the interesting thing about it is there really aren't Asians in Blade Runner. I mean, there sort of are, and they're, they're like labor, but they're not the heroes for sure. That's Harrison Ford. But like the specter of Asia is all over that text and mostly through style, like a lot of neon lights, a lot of like textual stylizations that look perhaps like Eastern script. And also this is the association that we have between like technology and things like Sony and Toyota and that many of the brands of the future come from Japan. And so, so like this is a, a film that captures that, but in a way that's still able to erase Asian humanness. There's a quote in the essay that actually goes back to when the term techno-orientalism was created back in the 90s. The quote is, in these examples, the Orient exists insofar as the West needs it because it brings the project of the West into focus. Yeah, so it's still like this cool futuristic world highlighting these white Americans. We have Blade Runner, but then we can trace this into more modern times, like a series like Firefly, which people love. It's a cult favorite, but it's also about the U.S. and China are kind of battling it out, and there's all these Asian influences. The characters even speak Mandarin, but none of the characters are actually Asian. <laughs> There's characters named River Tam and Simon Tam. And I was like, are those Asians? Because I think it's a Cantonese last name, right? But no, it's so weird. Like, why would they name their white characters Tam? Yeah, it's like, what war did the white people win against Asians that led <laughs> to this outcome? I know. But in some ways, that's like the way that 
American society appropriates native cultures and languages and still like has no actual evidence of of surviving native people in any of our representations, right? We can have Coachella, but like no actual indigenous people present because we are living in the post-apocalyptic moment of indigenous nations in North America. So like is Firefly thus something similar in which white people have committed genocide to all Asian people and just taken their like cool stuff? I don't know. So there's something about it that's deeply troubling, but so often it's still in the mode of homage, right? Like I'm thinking about the Matrix. And setting aside for now Keanu's Asianness, I think we'll come back to that in a future episode. This is a film that is like so, it has like an Asian soul to it, I think. Like, especially if you look at the martial arts and the John Woo gun battle, like like you just feel like stuck, like cinematically, it's got like a beating Asian heart to it, but there's no Asian people in it. Again, setting aside Keanu for now. And it's like a very much a world of like virtuality and what's real, what's not real. So our mutual friend, Sean Mark Lee, is probably the person who first really had me thinking about how techno-orientalism has impacted Asian-American artists. Sean Mark Lee is this photographer. We met him when he was in LA, but he's since moved to Taiwan where he gets many clients throughout Asia. Often they're, because he's Asian-American, in Asia, like if a Western company wants to do a photo shoot in Asia, they'll ask him because he kind of speaks their language. But part of it is like he understands their cultural cues he just says, like, he was posting this online, but he's just so tired of people basically asking him, make this look like Blade Runner. Make Tokyo look like Blade Runner. Or maybe if they don't say Blade Runner, he just knows what they're talking about. A certain kind of, like, neo-noir, neon lights. There's a way in which techno-orientalism has been, in the same way that old orientalism is both, like, we like love exoticism, right? But it's, it's ultimately decorative. And it's also to help us conquer, right? It makes the East more easy for us to take photos of, to bring these photos back to the United States and to reaccumulate our own wealth using this kind of like hyper-stylized Asian-ness. And that's a tension for us too as Asian-Americans, you know? Because we think it's cool too. We totally do. I mean, at certain parts of it, like maybe this has gone in waves. So I wonder if a, a new generation, how, how they would feel about it. I mean, I think for us, a lot of people of our generation, like escaping into anime was a way to see Asia as technologically advanced, as creative in, in terms of things like science fiction and speculative fiction in ways that Hollywood would never allow. And, and so maybe it's like that Asia-created techno-orientalism that you were referring to, but sometimes <laughs> for an Asian-American, like that's seductive too. And for reasons that are different than the seduction it has for the West. For sure, because I think for us, it's like we look at representations of Asian Americans here and it's so limited and we don't relate to it and it's not cool and it's not interesting. So we kind of exotify Asian stuff too because it's flashy. It's beautiful. I mean, it's not just anime, but you know, Bollywood, um, Wong Kar Wai stuff, you know? Wong Kar Wai, yeah, yeah. As Asian Americans, I think... It's interesting for us to explore because it's not that we don't understand it, but what are the limits of it? And, and maybe we just need an opportunity to, to work that out, right? to say like, oh, what do we like about this? And then how do we transform that into other kinds of storytelling possibilities, other ways of like imagining our identities? That's what we want to explore in this season. I wonder if for creatives currently in the industry, it's sort of like, we love it, but we should be a part of it. Right. If we had authorship over it, it would be different. Yeah. I feel like it's like that for stereotypes in general. A lot of the times it's not the actual stereotype that is bad, but what is it used for? And 
how does it limit us? Like, it's not kung fu that's bad, you know? But it's like, are you only limited to kung fu films and are you not the auteur of the kung fu films, you know? Um, so that's going to be a big question. And it's on the mind because a, I guess, sci-fi-ish film is about to come out very soon, which is the Shang-Chi film. Yeah! Marvel doing an Asian-themed superhero movie directed by an Asian-American that may still be playing to a lot of like what we are talking about in terms of techno-orientalism or maybe it's just a regular orientalism <laughs> but what happens when an asian american has some semblance of control over, or does he even have control we don't know <laughs> we'll, we'll find out i feel like as someone who is not that knowledgeable <laughs> about marvel films it's less that i have emotional investment but i think i have a lot of curiosity about it how is that gonna play out and i'm like i'm enticed by it too especially have like tony leung in it <laughs> at the same time I'm a little bit worried about it, though, right? Because you watch Tony Lung in it, and you're like, are they going to do right by him? I think he's he's resisted Hollywood for so long because I think he doesn't care about Hollywood, and he probably doesn't trust Hollywood. And I don't know what's different now. I guess we'll find out in a few months. But that's why, ultimately, I think for this season, the films that we have on our list right now, these are not Hollywood movies. Yeah. I mean, some of them are more, quote-unquote, mainstream than others. But for the most part, these are all very independently minded visions of what can a sci-fi Asian American world look like. And if you think about like the way techno-orientalism is usually founded on big budgets, the use of lavish technology, the inaccessible technology, mm-hmm. maybe the problem is from the mainstream, from Hollywood. This is a uniquely Hollywood imagination. So why not do the anti-Hollywood stuff too? <laughs> like like the, the very independent, almost amateurish works. We mean that as a compliment. <laughs> These are like not terms we'd usually use to describe science fiction. Maybe we should be using it to describe science fiction. It's actually kind of hard to find a lot of Asian American sci-fi films. I think you can find some that are short films, but normally these things are expensive to make. So maybe we should talk about today's film because this is such a, I think, a fun example of all of this. Yes. So today we're talking about the film Robot Stories by Greg Pak from 2003. It's an anthology film. It's four science fiction stories about robots. And I'm sure a lot of you know who Greg Pak is, but this was before he started writing for Marvel Comics and kind of became legendary in that way, creating a bunch of Asian American characters. Now he's known for his work like Extreme X-Men and his work in the Hulk and Hercules and Star Wars. (laughs) All these things we don't know anything about. But we do know about robot stories. We do, yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, like to me, Greg Pak is robot stories. So what I love about robot stories in the context of techno-orientalism is it's so mundane, right? There's nothing about these four stories, maybe the last one actually a little bit, that is about this insane like speculative world that bends our minds to these directions we've never been bent before. These are really just like stories about like people at work. Life and relationships. Yeah, relationships that just happen to have robots in them because they take place a little bit in the future. That's better, isn't it? So the tagline is science fiction from the heart. If you listen to our podcast, we love everything from the heart. (laughs) And I think the reason I really liked the idea of starting with this is because as we talk about how in some ways we've been feared as a community, there's links to how robots are feared, right? Like 
the robots are gonna take over, like we have to control the robots. Or that we are all going to turn into robots that are soulless. Right, right. And if you think about like the way that Asians themselves, both like the factory workers of China and like Bangladesh, but also as like outsourced call center workers in the Philippines or in India, like well, we've just become like, like robots for the West. We fear becoming that too. Yeah, but these stories are all about love. And, and it, like the, the film begins announcing this, like like so before the four short films even begin, it's like a title sequence. And it begins almost like the Matrix, like it's like zeros and ones, like green zeros and ones. It's very aware of a certain kind of like sci-fi mode that has historically not included Asian people. And then you have these robots who are pumping out zeros and ones and they're just like, oh, just like, we're just factory workers. All these robots are like red lights, almost like HAL 9000 in 2001, like red, red lights. And then one guy is a blue light and he starts pumping out numbers that aren't ones or zeros. Sevens and twos and fours. And he realizes there are all these colors and numbers beyond the binary, right? This binary of zeros and ones. And I feel like this is such like a delightful way of thinking about Asians finding themselves. Yeah. Like, oh wait, it's not just this binary, whether it's like black or white or whatever, or east and west. What if there were colors and numbers we didn't, we never imagined yet? But he does it in such a way that it is about love. It's not about like, therefore we can own the world because with this newfound identity it's just like maybe now we've discovered our capacity for I don't know, life and do you remember what the music was like in the sequence remind me it's not matrix music even though it's like zeros and ones and robots it's like a hoedown right? it sounds like folk music like like and, and we, we feel like different kinds of musical cues throughout the film that are not necessarily appropriate to sci-fi films and yeah, to me that has to do with the fact that maybe this is just not that far into the future maybe and maybe so with this like a folkness to it but i think that folkness also speaks to the heart that Greg Pak is in search of. And like folk in terms of the collective too and community and family. Yeah, the first segment is called My Robot Baby. It's like a romance and it stars Tamlin Tomita and James Saito, who are both so good looking. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like a couple who wants to have a baby, but they go through an adoption agency and the way that it works is that they give you a test robot baby first to see whether you're capable of raising a baby. So they bring home a robot baby that's a little bit more trouble than they think it will be. <laughs> <laughs> but it brings out tensions that's relatable to any parent. And it's like, like totally mundane, right? Just like discovering the baby's crying again. <laughs> or, or like, oh, you have to go to work? Does, I'm, you're leaving me home with the baby? Yeah, and like, what do you mean? You said we we're going to do this together. You didn't tell me that you're going out of town for a week? <laughs> that, that kind of thing. <laughs> so, so in some ways, like, you know, just like a typical little like domestic romance comedy. Well, actually, it starts off with Tamlin Tamita as, as a kid. And her mom is like, don't ever fall in love. Don't ever get married. Don't ever have kids. Which, first of all, that already feels like an Asian American narrative. <laughs> My mom was like that. But then also like them going to an adoption agency. I feel like the adoption narrative is also like a, a genre of Asian American cinema. So like it seems aware of that too. And then it, and the robot shows up. And so like he's using these speculative characters like robots to play with the genres of Asian American cinema. It's looking at the robot as something foreign in a way because they don't know how to take care of the robot, but it's just like a baby. <laughs> like It's adorable. It's a mess. You don't know what to do with it. It drives you crazy, but it's an extension of you. And I just love how they, they didn't spend a ton of money trying to make this robot look really <laughs> like a sight to behold. I mean, it looks a little bit like a air fryer with like eyeballs like taped onto it. It almost looks like you feed it by using a vape pen. 
That's so funny. Like, we're talking about vape pens and air fryers, neither of which were around in 2003. <laughs> They're predicting the future, which is 2021, post-apocalyptic 2021. Yeah, kids with vape pens. <laughs> The second one is called The Robot Fixer. This is like probably the least sci-fi of them all. A estranged son is on a... Is he like on his deathbed? He's in a coma. He got in an accident and he's in a coma. And then the the mother and his sister are visiting him. And then the mom is realizing how disconnected she's long been from her son. And then the daughter reminds her that as kids, like these toy robots were such a big part of his life. And in order to try to reconnect with her son at this last minute, in hopes that it can awaken him, she kind of dives into the world of his of these toy robots. Yeah, and I love it because it's also the opposite of a lot of these Hollywood films about robots and being terrified of robots. Like, this is robots as healing, robots as connecting, robots as figuring out the missing puzzle. I mean, there's literally missing puzzle pieces in this short. There's, like, the most fascinating cameos. <laughs> Are you talking about Rhea Tajiri as the doctor? Yeah! <laughs> oh my god! Listeners of the show will know we covered her film Lordville last season, and in a previous season we covered her feature film Strawberry Fields. But she just plays a doctor, just like a background character. It'd be like if Martin Scorsese showed up as a doctor in some random TV show, and kind of had one line. And I was looking at one of Greg Pak's early short films, which is called Asian Pride Porn. Do you know about this? That's familiar. I didn't realize Greg Pak was involved with this. It's actually on his YouTube page so you can watch it. But it stars David Henry Huang playing himself, talking about how he wants porn to represent Asian Americans better. And you know who plays the porn star? Tell us. Michael Kung. <laughs> Who was our first guest in season one. Yeah. Director of... The Motel. West 32nd. <laughs> no, that's so funny. No, but I think it shows that this is a, a close-knit community. And that a film like Robot Stories comes out of the community. People who attended these film festivals, as opposed to who were like... They worked in Hollywood and they always wanted to tell Asian American stories. It's not necessarily that. It's, it's coming out of the Asian American network. It feels like Easter eggs, right? Yeah. He was like, I know who Tamlin Tomita is. I know James Sato. He was the dad and always be my maybe. And then it's like, oh, look, later Vivian Bang shows up. She was in that movie too. You know? <laughs> How far back they all go. Yeah. I was talking to Leanne Kim yesterday, huh. founder of the San Diego Asian Film Festival, because I told her that we were recording about robot stories today. She said, you must tell your audience that Greg Pak and Tamlin Tomita met at our film festival. Really? And it's because they met at the San Diego Asian Film Festival that they were like, hey, maybe we should work together. And, and so uh, thinking about robot stories as coming out of the conversations around Asian American media and self-representation, especially in this time, right? Like 2003 was same year as Better Luck Tomorrow, around, around Better Luck Tomorrow, a little after the debut. Like the possibilities were like, well, what can we do together? Because no one's ever done this before. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, just starting with Tamlin Tomita, I mean, she's kind of like that representation of Hollywood, but community, right? Yeah. And she stole that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the next one is... Machine Love. Oh, yeah. So this is Greg Pak himself starring in it St yeah. as a often half-naked robot. <laughs> Named Archie. Which, I mean, I guess if you're the director, you can pick any role for yourself. That's the one. <laughs> so this is in the future of 2007. <laughs> 2007? Is that what it is? Yeah. 
this is when companies were outsourcing labor to robots. <laughs> like they'll actually like they call it an eye person, and then the robots come in and do menial tasks on a computer. <laughs> the more we interact, the more I can tailor my work to your expectations. <laughs> like they they couldn't just program the computer to do the work itself. You had to like bring in a life-size robot to, to sit at a desk and type out everything. Obviously, it's more cinematic that way. But yeah, like, how, how is the robot fashion? Like, what does the robot look like? How does, how does the robot move and sound? And I mean, some of it is just like typical what we'd find in cyborg-y kind of films. But I think it's important that the company that these robots are working in are mostly of white and Asian workers, including like Vivian Bang. And Tim King. But the robots, the two robots that we see in this, one played by Greg Pak, and then the other robot is... Julian Hanzika Kim. Working in another building. Both of them are mixed race. So there's a way in which the ambiguity or maybe the uncanniness of like, what are you exactly? That is I mean, so often asked to not just Asian people, but also like mixed race Asian people in a kind of different way. It gets played out in this sort of multiracial look. So it's interesting how <laughs> the robot becomes a way in which these mixed Asians enter the story. Find each other. And engage in robot sex. <laughs> Am I giving away too much? <laughs> uh, I mean, are we not allowed to have spoiler alerts for films from 2003. To me, it's less a spoiler than something to look forward to. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah, yes. Earlier in this episode, you were talking about how you want to be the robot. I like do. You'd rather be the robot. In this case, nobody seems to be enjoying being a cog in capitalism, whether you are a living person or a robot. But what I love about the robots here is they're the ones who find a way to rebel and to kind of break from the machinery and copulate in, in the middle of, of a uh, corporate office. I don't know if copulate is the right word for this. Yeah, I don't know if that has to do with why I want to be a robot. <laughs> <It's>, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Um, um, yeah, but I guess it is. It's, I'm not thinking about being a cog in a machine. I guess maybe it's just like, it seems like there's more possibilities. Maybe, maybe you have strengths. You might have strengths. For me, I think part of it is like, people might not know what to make of you. And it's kind of breaking out of the stereotype that I think as Asian Americans, sometimes you feel pretty like what's the word people think they know exactly they think they know all about you yeah yeah but but yeah but here like the robots they're ambiguous like racially ambiguous but then they're also like sexually ambiguous in the sense that people don't know like can i touch the robot can i fondle the robot they don't but then especially the asian one i mean they basically harass her yeah 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 and then like will they fight back is the question yeah I want to be the robot that fights back. Right. <laughs> I think that's a way of thinking about labor and like outsourced labor. We're outsourcing labor that seems to be the model minority kind of labor, right? And our robots, the ultimate model worker. Yeah. But in the same way that we talk about Asian Americans as like the model minority, we, we won't be bound by it. Will robots feel the same way? <laughs> I love that the robot at some point runs out of work to do. And then it's like, oh, my work is done what do I do? And, and like that, that what next, right? Like what is an excess of the assignments beyond efficiency? What do we do now? You go find the other robot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> other possibilities. <laughs> right. So, so that, that, this one to me is like, like the most fun. All the, the living human people are just like, I don't know what to do with these robots. Like we just let them do what they want to do. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it doesn't become a war. But I still like just everyone just seems so clueless in this office anyways. Like Yeah, but I mean so this one 
to contrast this with how robots are typically seen, you empathize with a robot from the beginning. But the robot's the main character. We see him going on the subway <laughs> to work. It's the humans that are aliens here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. They don't understand us, the robots. And then the last one is kind of a good ending because it makes us think about um, the allures of technology and the limits of it when it comes to life and death, like literally life and death. So Saab Shimono, who is another kind of legendary Asian-American actor in the community, he's such a huge part of the theater scene. If you guys listen to Saturday School, this episode is a good one where we have a lot of callbacks because in our season of Asian-American romance films, we we covered The Wash, which he was a part of. Mm -hmm. He plays like an older man. He's a sculptor. He lost his wife. There's this idea of like something about consciousness. This is set in the far future of 2027. Oh my god, 2027. That's coming up. That's coming up, yeah. <laughs> so apparently in this year, scientists will now know how to make a copy of our brain and all of our memories so that we can sort of upload ourselves into our consciousness into the future. Yeah, so even if our bodies die, our consciousness lives on. And his son is trying to get him to do this. His health is, he's kind of falling apart himself. His wife who has passed away, has, I, I assume that she has uploaded her own consciousness into this, I don't know, cloud or something. So Sab Shimona's character can just plug himself into that cloud and hang out with his wife, who is still very young. He could even transform him into his, his younger self. His younger, hotter self played by Tim King. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like, like in robot stories, a lot of actors play two roles. Yeah, yeah. So they show up throughout the different stories. Which to me is like even more of a nice, like almost like theater skits. Yeah, for sure. That's what it feels like. Yeah, yeah. That, it's exactly what it feels like. It feels like an Asian American sketch show in a theater that only seats 30 people. <laughs> with, with robots. Yeah. So, I mean, this episode is, in some ways, it's like the more typical, like, Black Mirror-y kind of, what if we can talk to those who have passed? But it's also, like, it's the most soulful of the four, most in tune to issues of love and loss and, like, how do, how do you say goodbye through this, like, idea of, like, I can live forever with my loved ones, but I lose my body, or do I keep hanging on? And this is somebody who, like, he he's a sculptor. Like, there's many of these shots of him touching the clay and the, this short is called clay like he's an analog kind of guy he doesn't quite believe that his wife who he talks to he doesn't quite believe that she's real and so he's trying to figure out am i against technology do i need to surrender to it in the far future of 2027 do i have a choice part of the reason he's not sure if it's a real version is he's not sure if he's only getting the fantasy version because he remembers like the reality was a lot more complicated you're kind of grappling with fantasy how it's alluring, but if it's not real, do you want the reality or the fantasy? Right, which is like kind of what the Matrix is about too, right? Yeah, yeah. How much do we care about the quote-unquote real? And here, like, Greg Pak's found a way to tell this in such a grounded way, even though it is about these sort of, we're speculating on technologies that don't exist yet. And so loving. And it's just like, let's just see what these people are going through, as opposed to thinking about in terms of heroes and villains. How does this technology turn into battle or something? like That's not a outcome that is of interest to any of these four shorts. Yeah. So but before we, we close this, I, I thought it was interesting at, at the very end of the credits, it has this big dedication to New York City because 9-11 happened, I think like right when they started shooting. And so maybe like there's a sort of melancholy 
throughout all of this and maybe like this wanting to be close to each other. And we started today talking about this sort of post-apocalyptic moment when all that we know about our world is sort of crumbling or it's sort of like, will anything ever be the same again? And I think we're all working through that right now. Yeah. And then so watching Robot Stories, which was made like in the wake of 9-11 and a filmmaker who is thinking to the future in terms of love, in terms of like Asian love, interracial love, robot love, (laughs) um, and finding other ways that we can be together virtually or in person. Yeah. I'm really excited about being able to talk about this film because it was a film that we had wanted to talk about in earlier seasons, but it just didn't quite fit the topics that we were looking at at the time. But I do think there's something nice about doing it now because that is where we are, you know, kind of where California has just reopened. You know, if we're vaccinated, it's safe to see our families and friends again. And how does that feel? And there's this tenderness there that I think Robot Stories really captures. And I hope you guys will go out and watch it because I think it'll have a certain resonance that might be special to this moment. As I say that, I acknowledge that we are kind of a pain at Saturday school, (laughs) and we like to talk about movies that are very hard to find, but hey, it's on DVD. For the kids out there, DVDs are these CDs that have movies in them that go on a DVD player if you have them. But they're like, what are CDs? (laughs) Or, you know, Greg Pak is pretty active on Twitter. You can tweet at him and be like... You need to figure out how to get this on streaming. <laughs> I mean, the 20-year anniversary is coming up. Oh, yeah. In a couple of years. Oh, my God. That would be amazing. Yeah. So we need a 20th anniversary screening of this with everybody who is involved and also an opportunity to have this on a streaming service so people can watch it. And as always, you can just go to your local library. <laughs> Or or university library. (laughs) Saturday School brought to you by university libraries. (laughs) So you and I went in person somewhere on a trip. Yeah, we went on a field trip. We went on a field trip. Next week, we're going to be talking about the video artist Namjoon Pike, who is, we might not necessarily first like immediately think about as an Asian American artist or as a science fiction artist or as a filmmaker. But we're going to try to do all those things at the same time. We make our own rules here at Saturday School. Yeah. All right. Good to be back. Yeah, good to be back. Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck, a collective of podcasts that feature stories and voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our logo is by Grace Talis Lee. Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. Check out our website at SaturdaySchoolPodcast.com or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And the podcast Twitter handle is Wake Up Sat School. Class dismissed. Hey, I'm Phil Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. 
We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, we've got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace.